This program features interviews with respected healthcare industry experts on current topics of substantial national importance. Your host for the program is David Intricasso, a DC-based healthcare policy analyst and researcher. We invite you to comment on the program by visiting thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Now, here's David. Welcome to the Healthcare Policy Podcast. Again, I'm the host, David Intricasso. During this podcast, we'll discuss with Dr. Jeremy Hess the November 28th publication of The Lancet Countdown, Tracking Progress on Health and Climate Change. Dr. Hess, welcome to the program. Thanks so much. I'm delighted to be here. Dr. Hess is co-author of the report along with approximately 70 other scientists and is an emergency physician and professor at the University of Washington in Seattle. His complete bio is posted on the podcast website. On background, listeners are aware this is my fourth related climate change effort over the past few months. In October, I interviewed Healthcare Without Harm's Jessica Wolf. And in November, I interviewed University of Washington professor Chris Ebay, a co-author of the October 8th Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change report titled Global Warming at 1.5 Degrees Centigrade, and posted that same month a website on the website, rather, related essay I authored. I am waiting to learn if the EPA will answer questions I submitted six weeks ago concerning the 2016 report titled The Impacts of Climate Change on Human Health, the lead author of which was the EPA's Allison Crimmins. And I have an essay forthcoming in Health Affairs titled bluntly, Climate Change is the Greatest Threat to Human Health in History. Concerning this discussion, the Lancet Countdown, first proposed in 2015, provides an assessment of generally the health and economic effects of climate change or global warming. It does this by tracking 41 indicators in five domains. They are climate change impacts, exposures, and vulnerability, adaptation planning and resilience for health, mitigation actions and health co-benefits, finance and economics, and public and political engagement. Again, with me to discuss the Lancet's 2018 countdown findings, Dr. Jeremy Hess. So with that as background, albeit a bit uh, lengthy, let me ask uh, you first, Jeremy, uh, how did you come by and what specifically was your contribution to this report? I do know your efforts were voluntary. That's correct. Entirely voluntary. Uh, I joined the Lancet Countdown effort um, late in 2017. I was not part of that full production cycle and then this year was my first uh, full participation in the entire report. And I worked uh, on the adaptation uh, group and on the indicators in that part of the report, though uh, I had a little bit of input into some of the other uh, work groups and other areas of the report as well. And then I also was the senior author on uh, the U.S. Country Brief, which is uh, accompanies the countdown and outlines progress uh, on the same indicators, but for the United States, States specifically. And I worked with Dr. Renee Salas of Harvard on that. Great. Thank you. Just um, on background as well, you are a participant in your universities, I believe it's at least housed at your university, Center for Health and the Global Environment, acronym CHANGE. Uh, can you uh, briefly tell us what that work is about? 
Yeah, so I'm uh, the co-director of uh, change here at the University of Washington or the UW. Um, I co-direct the center with uh, Dr. Christy Ebi, whom you mentioned earlier as one of your prior uh, podcast interviews. And we focus on uh, the intersection between global environmental change and human health. It's a very broad remit. Uh, we look principally at climate change, but certainly at other environmental changes as well. And uh, in regards to climate change, we concern ourselves with uh, documenting and studying the uh, health effects of climate change and also with uh, preparing the health sector, both public health and the healthcare delivery sector, for uh, these environmental changes. We also look at the health co-benefits of uh, mitigation policies. Okay, thanks again. Let's get into uh, this report. It's quite detailed uh, at 36-odd pages. Again, these five domains. Uh, the first two seem to be most specific to uh, the correlation between global warmer, climate change, and uh, health or adverse uh, health effects. Again, climate change impacts exposures and vulnerability. You noted specifically the latter or the second, adaptation planning and resilience. So relative to these two, what, from your perspective, uh, did you think or find were the most substantive or compelling, uh, just to note that the first uh, actually had uh, climate change impacts had 10, noted 10 indicators? Yeah, it's quite quite a, an extensive list, as you know. Um, ten indicators related to impacts, exposures, and vulnerability, and then uh, eight indicators related to adaptation, planning, and uh, resilience for health. Um, you know, we we try each year to focus on some new and different areas uh, and highlight particular indicators uh, in the report, and this year. Uh, some of the indicators that we focused on in particular related to uh, to heat exposure and uh, vulnerability related to extreme heat exposure. Uh, one of the innovations in the report is focusing on uh, exposure not just in terms of global average temperatures, but focusing on exposure and temperatures where people reside, and then coupling those uh, measures with indicators of vulnerability to extreme heat. And when you combine those two, and we, we all know that the world is warming, but what's particularly concerning is that the world is warming faster over land and particularly fast, uh, generally speaking, in uh, urban or more highly populated environments. And that is uh, where a lot of people are exposed to extreme heat. So there's this exposure amplification that's happening. And of course, there are a lot of vulnerable people in those settings as well. And uh, we tend to think of high resource countries and other settings um, to be you know, insulated from those exposures. But in fact, if you look from a vulnerability standpoint in terms of things that uh, make people more susceptible to uh, heat, to, to developing illness from heat exposure, 
even in high-income countries, the vulnerability is high. So all around, it's a worrisome picture. We're not able to link these exposures specifically to uh, health outcomes yet on a global scale, but from an exposure and vulnerability standpoint, there are a lot of reasons for concern. Yes, uh, thank you. And one of the one of innumerable stats I noted, uh, 157 million worldwide exposed to heat wave or more, 157 million more people exposed to heat wave events in 17 uh, compared to 2000, and the estimate that uh, with uh, extreme heat, there's lost labor hours, particularly obviously amongst agricultural workers, and the right. calculation there was 153 billion hours of labor lost in 17 because of uh, heat increases, um, and this represents an, uh, almost a three-time increase rather than the 62 billion hours lost in uh, 2000. And then, of course, they're associated, and this is one of the domains, finance and economics, but they know, report notes in 17, 712 extreme weather events were estimated at $326 billion in economic losses. What I wanted to note, and you backed with noting um, concentrated populations, obviously in urban and in cities, um, I was struck by the effect uh, with such, so much carbon and other pollutants emitted into the atmosphere, the effects of uh, air pollution on human health. Um, and in fact, one stat said something about, uh, noted something that uh, uh, people in 90% of cities are breathing uh, polluted air, and between 10 and 16 air pollution concentrations worse in almost 70% of cities around the globe. So let's connect the dots between uh, air quality and health, please. Yes. So uh, we've known for quite a long time that uh, several different air pollutants, criteria air pollutants, we call them in the United States, um, nitrous, nitrogen oxides, sulfur oxides, ozone, uh, and particulate uh, air pollution, our principal among them, um, are very bad for people's health. And those emissions, those uh, pollutants come from uh, combustion of fossil fuels principally. And so they're co-emitted with carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases. And uh, the point here is that we are highly exposed to those pollutants, uh, largely as a as a result of our dependence on fossil fuels and our extensive utilization of fossil fuels, and that that already is causing a substantial health burden. And there's a great opportunity to move toward renewable energy sources away from fossil fuels and to reduce the burden uh, of those pollutants uh, on our health. And the, so the, that's essentially the, the health co-benefits story of mitigate, climate change mitigation. Um, climate change, as, as climate change progresses the, and the world warms, we do expect there to be some amplification of the uh, photochemistry and uh, the atmospheric chemistry that occurs to produce some of those pollutants. So we expect climate change to worsen those hazards as well. But the real story here is that 
we can dramatically reduce that health burden quite quickly uh, by pivoting toward uh, renewable energy sources. Yes, and I'll just uh, note as well, relative to the, related to the report, since you mentioned um, fossil fuel, uh, the report noted coal accounts for 16% of air pollution-related premature mortality globally, and that um, I did find this interesting as well. Uh, about a third or more of the world population, 2.8 billion, live without access to healthy, clean, and sustainable cooking fuels and technology, meaning a good number of the world's population cooks over uh, an open flame in a confined space, and over time, obviously, that's not that's not good for your lungs. Um, oh, not at all. Yeah, yeah. Thank- a very large driver of lots of different adverse health impacts. Uh, you know, respiratory disease, leading uh, killer of children, and then also to um, things like uh, illness and death from burns from exposure to open fires. Yes. Uh, the report also noted 7 million die each year is the, is the calculation from uh, air pollution. Um, let me ask, so much, there's much discussion in all these reports, this one no exception, about vector-borne diseases. This is um, mm-hmm. vectors, uh, uh, insects, uh, rats, etc. I was struck particularly by uh, the rapid or increasing spread of dengue fever, uh, could you explain that? I mean, now it's now present in the U.S. It is present in the U.S. It's been present uh, intermittently in certain border areas around uh, southern Texas for quite some time, but it's now endemic in Florida and um, endemic in Texas. And uh, we can expect that it will likely continue to move northward and the the ecology relates principally to the vector, the mosquitoes' uh, behavior. So you know, these mosquitoes uh, can overwinter in these warmer parts of our country, and um, but they're not very active. Uh, and so the longer the uh, active season for them, the more likely they are to cause. Uh, to cause disease, and as temperatures warm, given other conditions, assuming other conditions are suitable, um, the vectors will be more active, they bite more frequently, and they'll go through more reproductive cycles in a given season, and as a result, more people are exposed, and thus more people uh, will contract the disease and pass it on. And this is a, ecologically a story that we see in some form or another with several different mosquito-borne diseases. We see it with uh, several tick-borne diseases like Lyme disease. Uh, and it's not always only related to warming. It's also sometimes related to changes in precipitation and uh, food availability for uh, other animals that are uh, part of the uh, cycle for different diseases. But uh, overall, climate change appears to be driving uh, a significant increase in disease burden, particularly for dengue the world over. Okay. You did mention uh, food supply, and the report does discuss effects on agriculture or agricultural yield. 
I, I think this mm -hmm. is um, not well uh, uh, understood and, and little discussed. Um, the bottom line report notes that agriculture yield in 30 countries uh, are trending downward or crop yields are trending downward in those countries because the effects of global warming and just leave aside um, uh, hurricanes, but of course flooding, drought, uh, other severe weather events, and the nutrition value because of warming is reduced uh, because uh, uh, plants are have less protein content and lower minerals. Um, are we seeing that? My question is, or my thought when I read this, they say 30 countries. I guess if I look, maybe there's an appendix that lists these, but we're not seeing that yet, or are we in the U.S.? Uh you know, I don't think that we are seeing that here in the U.S. in the same way. Uh, we are relatively more food secure than many other countries mm -hmm. are included in that list. And certainly most of us are not um, dependent on subsistence agriculture here. Uh, of course, there's quite a bit of food insecurity in the United States. I don't mean to to right. underestimate that. It's distribution, uh, yes, yes. Yeah, but it's uh, not related to uh, directly to impact on subsistence agriculture generally. It's related to poverty and food system issues and other, other concerns. Um, so as you mentioned, there's been a, a drop in food supply in many regions of the world. It does appear to be related to extreme weather events. Um, it could be extreme heat, it could be drought, it could be floods, it could be some combination. Uh, and the impacts of climate change on uh, agricultural productivity are, are complicated, and there are several different factors that go into it. Uh, on the, the plus side, in some parts of the world, uh, the warming does lead to a longer growing season, mm -hmm. and the increased carbon dioxide in the atmosphere does uh, fertilize plants, so they grow more quickly. But when you look uh, in aggregate at food supply, uh, you see that there are some pretty significant constraints that have to do with temperature and extreme weather. And overall, those constraints appear likely to undermine uh, the benefits that climate change might bring to agricultural productivity in some places. And as you mentioned, a lot of staple crops, uh, because they may be growing faster from CO2 fertilization and, uh, and warming if it's within their window for growth, uh, they actually are not incorporating much more in the way of micronutrients. And so their nutritional value um, per weight uh, goes down. And so for populations that are highly dependent on those staple crops and subsistence agriculture, that represents a, a you know, increased risk for malnutrition, uh, both micronutrient and protein energy malnutrition. Okay, thank you. Let, let's go to, uh, so this is a discussion on the effect. So let's, let's discuss the cause. So obviously this is... Um, uh, the amount of uh, CO2 and other greenhouse gases we release into uh, the atmosphere and, and, and absorbed certainly uh, by the oceans. 
that amount, we know from a report out last week, actually went up in, uh, this year, is expected to go up this year in the U.S., China, yeah. elsewhere, um, not uh, insignificantly. At least in the U.S., it was largely attributed to increased usage or consumption of oil reserves. Um, mm-hmm. But the report is, is very detailed in percents and gigatons, et cetera, uh, of greenhouse gas emissions. But let me uh, ask you specifically as it relates to the amount that the healthcare industry emits. So the report notes specifically U.S. greenhouse gas emissions in healthcare to be 655 metric tons, nearly 10% of U.S. emissions. And I think they're picking up on a 16 uh, plus one uh, academic piece. Uh, but since you work at a university, um, an academic institution, you're a part of this a change organization. What, what's your understanding of the extent to which the healthcare industry is greening itself, as they say? Well, uh, healthcare is in a state of transition around this. There are some organizations like Kaiser Permanente that have done a really outstanding job. They identified uh, the concerns around this and the opportunity to reduce greenhouse gas emissions and um, invest in environmental sustainability early on, and they've maintained that commitment uh, in a very steadfast way. And as a result, they have uh, nearly achieved carbon neutrality. Kaiser Permanente is going to achieve carbon neutrality by 2020 for its entire uh, organization, including its clinical activities, which is really astonishing. And uh, I am highlighting that wherever I go, because I think that's a really important achievement. Uh, a lot of other healthcare organizations have, I think, had a more diffuse focus and not um, not made that as much of a priority. And as a result, they continued to uh, consume large uh, amounts of electricity from fossil fuel sources and uh, emit a lot of greenhouse gases from their transit-related activities. Um, and, you know, in, in healthcare, we're very concerned about the harms that we might perpetrate, and we're most preoccupied about the harms that come from the direct care that we provide in patient interactions through procedures and medication administration and things like that. And that's a very... Substantial, we, we impose a substantial burden on people's health with medical errors. But if you look at uh, the health burden associated with greenhouse gas emissions and the co-pollutants that come from those uh, from U.S. healthcare institutions, it's of a similar order of magnitude, uh, probably not quite as large as the burden from uh, medical errors, but certainly uh, worth considering. And honestly, as part of our Hippocratic Oath, we, we should be focusing on this and doing a lot more in healthcare to reduce our uh, carbon pollution, both to take care of future generations, but also because it impacts people's health right here and right now. We just don't see it in the same way as we be a surgical wound infection or a catheter-associated infection, things like that. Um, so 
we are working hard with organizations like Healthcare Without Harm and Project Green Health to, or Practice Green Health, excuse me, to uh, get the word out around these issues and the opportunities. And a lot of times, surprisingly enough, uh, a small investment leads to a really big downstream payoff, uh, not just in terms of patients' health, but also financially for an organization. So it's really the right thing to do. Okay, uh, thank you. So just to mention one variation uh, on this, and that's um, divestment. So the report Mm -hmm. noted that global fossil fuel divestment in 17 was 428 billion healthcare institutions could, per this amount, step up further. The estimate is uh, they contributed in 17 3.28 billion, uh, but recognize 428 billion is over five trillion dollar uh, denominator in um, investment. Uh, let me go to. Um, I thought very interesting, although I, I can't say I was surprised, but uh, there is a discussion in the report where uh, there's a study looking at uh, media coverage of the subject. Uh, so just uh, how many, what's the percent increase in uh, New York Times, et cetera, other newspapers' coverage of climate change or global warming. And then there's a particular look at to what extent, when there is that discussion, there is a coincident discussion on health. And I, I can't say I was surprised, but, and I'm quoting from the report, less than 5% of newspapers and scientific journals uh, regarding climate change relate to health. So, and the example they gave was the story covers uh, the Affordable Care Act or the story covers uh, the Paris uh, Climate Accord, but seldom is there, do these stories or third stories uh, cover the interrelationship between uh, healthcare delivery uh, and the effects, the health effects of climate. I don't know. It, it it always seemed to me to be pretty intuitive. You can't be healthy in an envi- in an unhealthy environment. Um, what's what's your take or read on this? Is it similarly surprise or or what's your understanding? Um, I think that it's it's a little complicated. I think that you're right. You can't be uh, fully healthy in an unhealthy environment, though you can be somewhat healthy in an unhealthy environment. and For so long, right. For, for a period of time. Uh, and I think that we have in our minds that there is some necessary trade-off between uh, environmental damage and economic progress that we have to accept in order to move forward. And there are lots and lots of examples of places that have not made that trade-off and where people are healthier and happier and more productive uh, and live longer as a result. But that narrative is still in people's minds. And so I think they believe that we can... um, undermine or threaten the environment in certain places and that that won't necessarily have a huge impact on our health, at least not in the immediate future. Um, But there's evidence that's increasing from all quarters of the globe that time's running out, that those ecosystems that help protect us and nurture our health are 
in some cases becoming irreparably damaged and that replacing the services we get from those systems and the products and other things will be uh, really, really expensive if it's possible at all. Uh, and I think what's happening is as climate change impacts, the environmental impacts are becoming more and more apparent, uh, more widespread and more pronounced. We're seeing more health impacts. More and more scientists are comfortable making these links very definitively. And so you're seeing an uptick in coverage related to climate and health, and the report documents that. And as these some of these systems become damaged beyond repair and the expense required to uh, replace the services that we're getting from those ecosystems becomes apparent uh, when we have major floods and uh, big storms come through and we've lost the protective barriers that uh, helped protect against storm surge and flooding and other things. Um, then we start to take notice. And I think that narrative is emerging and I think it will continue to accelerate as we move forward. I just hope that we take heed in time. Right, right. The, 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 the stat you typically hear is, is we're living at 150% of the Earth's uh, capacity. Mm-hmm. Let, let, me, let me conclude by reading several statements, uh, all sobering and in some excessively sobering uh, in this report. Um, uh, just to pick a few, somewhat at random, uh, unacceptable high level of risk for the current and future health populations across the world, Lack of progress threatens to overwhelm health services. Global inertia in adapting to climate change persists. Dire implications for every aspect of human life. Carbon intensity remains broadly unchanged. Climate change is moving faster than we are. And then in typical British fashion, the report gives great cause for concern. So all very sobering. But I do appreciate your last part and why I, I thought to cite these. And that's that's the narrative. We've seen, a, I think, a, a, a remarkable amount of news and coverage of this subject since October 8th of the IPCC report. I, I'm, I presume you would believe uh, that will persist. That the coverage will persist? Yes, that the narrative will continue. Uh, it'll be increasingly substantive. Uh, let's just say our learning curve will improve. Yes, I think that's, that's uh, very much going to be the case. I think that uh, the dire predictions that we've made in the last decade and a half are starting to uh, become manifest and that there's a lot of loss here that we're just starting to confront. And uh, it's, pretty upsetting to people and worrisome. And I think that that narrative will continue and will build strength going forward. And I guess that's the, the most we can hope or ask for. I will, my last comment in reading through my notes here, I, I did find it uh, impressive. The National Health Service, uh, of course, Lance would be remiss if they didn't know what they've done, has achieved 11% reduction in emissions of carbon or greenhouse gas between 07 and 15, so uh, to their credit. So with, with that, uh, uh, Jeremy, I genuinely appreciate your time. Uh, I hope you can contribute and do contribute to this narrative uh, going forward. Um, and I hope you're, you're bothered endlessly with reporting on your research. So thank you for this opportunity. <laughs>
Well, thank you, David. I really appreciate both the opportunity to um, outline all the reasons for concern and as you did there with uh, the National Health Service and then Kaiser Permanente and others, highlight the opportunities here, which are really tremendous and will have dramatic immediate impacts on people's health. Thank you again. You have just heard another edition of the Healthcare Policy Podcast hosted by David Intricasso. To comment on this program or others, to see information about upcoming interviews, to suggest a program topic, or to hear an archive program, please visit our website, thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Thank you for listening, and please listen again soon.